Welcome to Talking Films. Today we are starting to talk about the hero Gotham deserves, but not the one it needs right now. Because he's not the hero. He's a silent guardian, watchful protector. I want you to do me a favor. I want you to tell all your friends about me. This is 1989's Batman. Lieutenant, is there a six-foot bat in Gotham City? Nice outfit. Fine. I didn't ask. I have given a name to my pain. What are you? I'm Batman. Where did he get those wonderful toys? My life is really. Ah! Complex. Winged freak terrorizes. Wait till they get a load of me. <laughs> Welcome back to Talking Films, this debut episode of season two, I guess you can call it. I've taken a little bit of a hiatus from doing the podcasting, but I'm back planning on getting some more regular content up here on the podcast. Thanks for listening and tuning in. However, you're you're tuning in today, whether it's through Anchor or Spotify or Google Podcasts or directly through the Talking Films website, talkinggreatestfilms.wordpress.com. It's on that website that you can find a bunch of content that I've been working away at over the last few days, weeks, and months, including the 007 series review, which I'm almost finished right now, just two more to go prior to the release of No Time to Die at some point this year. You can find all those written reviews on the website, um, as well as other podcasts, uh, including the Mission Impossible series podcasts, which I did last summer and fall, which I had some great feedback on and kind of inspired me to jump into a different series and a bit of a different world of movies, I guess, as well with uh, the Batman series, which I'm doing now. Um, and just to tease a little bit, I'm I'm on the verge of having some cool content going up there uh, that has to do with Batman a little bit. Um, I will be starting with the live action uh, Batman movie from 1989 called Batman, and proceeding through all of the live action Batman movies uh, that have been produced between 1989. Uh, and possibly, I haven't decided exactly where the end point will be yet, either through The Dark Knight Rises or through uh, the 2017 movie Justice League, and which will probably take us through to the Zack Snyder cut of Justice League coming out uh, later this winter or early spring. Going to jump right into Batman, though, directed by Tim Burton. Screenplay was written by Sam Hamm and Warren Skarin. Music by Danny Elfman. And the cast It's pretty solid cast for the late 80s. Michael Keaton in his debut performance as Batman, the villain, the Joker played by the one and only Jack Nicholson, and the love interest of the movie was Vicki Vale played by Kim Basinger. The movie also starred Robert Wool, Pat Hingle, Billy D. Williams, Michael Goff, Jack Palance, and Tracy Walter. Uh, the financial details of the movie Batman released in June 1989 to what was at the time a record $40 million opening weekend. 
ended up earning over $250 million domestically and $411 million worldwide. Now, in 1989, when it was released, it was going up against Indiana Jones and the Last Crusade uh, for the number one box office spot. Indy ended up taking the number one spot worldwide, but in, in North America, domestically, Batman was the number one movie at the box office. IMDb rating of 7.5. Rotten Tomatoes has it rated as a 71% critic rating, 84% audience score. Uh, and Peter Travers from the Rolling Stone, who I reference a lot on this podcast, didn't actually review this uh, this movie. I wasn't able to find his take on Tim Burton's Batman. Now, first off, and, and this will probably be the longest uh, of the Batman podcasts that I do, just because of uh, kind of the introductory aspect of it, similar to how I structured the Mission Impossible series last summer. This is going to take on a much very similar format. So we need to set the bar with the uh, the Batman live action movies, particularly with the first quartet of Batman movies. Um, Batman is kind of a unique superhero in some way. Well, I guess he's not really unique. We see it a lot happen a lot with other superheroes, such as Superman and Spider Man, who who have had multiple uh, actors kind of take on the mantle or take on the role. Um, so th- you can kind of group Batman into three or maybe four different. Uh, groups, I guess. You have the the first quartet of Batman movies, which starts here in 1989 and takes us through the 90s. You have the Nolan Dark Knight trilogy, uh, and then you have the Ben Affleck, Batfleck version from Batman vs. Superman uh, and Justice League. And of course, this year, well, hopefully this year, uh, if not probably early next year, we will be introduced to uh, Matt Reeves' take on the batman of course that trailer came out late in the summer in 2020 and and blew viewers away i know i was one of them i've watched that trailer dozens and dozens of times the robert pattinson version which is currently in production in the uk so with this batman movie uh tim burton is directing so you know it's going to be off the wall you know it's going to be over the top crazy and wacky and that's exactly what Batman is in this movie and over the, the next three movies as well, from the architecture of Gotham City to the casting of the villains. As I mentioned, Jack Nicholson as the Joker in this one. We're going to talk a lot more about Jack and the Joker as we move forward. But first, we got to do we got to do the Batman uh, introduction, the Batman background, created by Bob Kane. First appeared in DC Comics in 1939. Uh, the superhero made his television debut in 1966 with Adam West portraying Batman in an ABC series. That same year, following the conclusion of the first season, uh, West's Batman made the feature film debut in Batman, which was a direct tie-in to the TV series. So fast forward 26 years later, uh, or 23 years later, sorry, some other appearances in animated TV shows. Uh, Warner Brothers launched the first part of the Batman franchise with this wild and zany movie. Shortly after that, in the early 90s, Kevin Conroy began voicing Batman in another animated series, um, a role which he has stayed on for for several other shows, video games, and animated feature films over the last uh, going into three decades now or four decades now. Uh, Over the course of the podcast series, as I mentioned, I'll go through all the live-action Batman adaptations, so apologies to Lego and Will Arnett. Uh, I will also not be analyzing Joker, since I don't consider that a Batman movie. Uh, and also I, I think it kind of has its own place within, uh, movies and it's quite honestly not a movie that I want to dedicate a lot of time talking about. 
So Tim Burton, 1989, Batman, Michael Keaton as the titular role. The opening sets us up with the dark criminal underground of Gotham City. Uh, we get a, the reveal of the Bat and Batman uh, with those two uh, kind of thugs and muggers on the rooftop uh, in, a, in a really great scene. Uh, I know one of the complaints I hear sometimes is that they, they revealed Batman too early, and I get that that's a, a valid complaint for any movie that comes out today uh you know especially if it's not one that's focusing on the origin story clearly uh in this world in this world of gotham city uh, or in this version of gotham city batman has been around for a bit you hear the the criminals kind of talking about him and referencing him so he's clearly been around for for some period of time but we also have to take a step back and look at the production side of it and and the studio's perspective and even the writing uh, perspective of it because this is the first big budget batman movie it's the first time since 1966 that batman has been in a movie and it's a very different type of movie than that 1966 movie it's it's more of a blockbuster as opposed to a tie-in to uh any other production that's going on so keeping in mind with that that it's, it's the first big budget batman movie i think i think it was important to reveal batman within the first few minutes um and again it's not exactly an origin story it kind of is but not really we'll get into that a little bit later on too but um i think it is important to reveal batman he's he's the title character uh you can make the argument he's not the main focus of the movie and that's certainly a, a valid argument that i will certainly listen to and and you know perhaps agree with from time to time um but you know we've had origin stories since then but giving in this movie giving him his initial appearance right away uh, really grabs the viewer's attention and really lets you know, hey, Batman is the hero of this movie, right down to uh, it's the second line that Batman speaks, which is, I'm Batman. Um, and, you know, that really sets the table for the whole Batman universe that is developed over the course of the next, you could argue over the next four movies. I think there's definitely enough, uh, you know, concurrent and, and constants within those four movies to say that they're all part of the same universe or part of the same overarching story. Um, then you cut to the Knox subplot. Knox is this journalist played by Robert Wool, who, um, you know, is, is writing about Batman. He's kind of ridiculed a lot for it. Uh, you also get, as I mentioned, the, the criminal underground. So you get that through the, the kind of disorganized thugs and, and muggers, but you also get that through Jack Napier, uh, played by Jack Nicholson uh, and Grissom. Gotham City here, it's a, it's a really interesting dual paranoia because everyone seems to be scared of someone. Uh, the criminals obviously are scared of the Batman, uh, or sorry, are scared of Batman. Uh, and that's something that I'll kind of be discussing as the movie goes along because you have almost two very distinct camps. One where uh, he's referred to as Batman, the other where he's referred to as the Batman. And, and in this universe, it's very much he is Batman. So the criminals here are very scared of Batman. There's a lot of paranoia around that and this kind of shadowy figure. Is he real or isn't he? But regardless of if he is or not, we still have to be careful uh, as we're you know holding up, uh, whether it's stores or people on the side of the road. Um, and then you have pretty much everyone else. So the city employees... Uh, you know, the wealthy people of Gotham who are scared of the criminals and the scared of the, the influence of Grissom, who's clearly this uh, big time mob boss within Gotham City who no one really 
has real authority to take him down. And in that sense, it's, it's almost a, an ode to film noir and classic kind of old style uh, movie criminals. I mean, even what they're wearing, like all the all of Grissom's henchmen are, are decked out in nice pinstripe suits and fedoras. They have Tommy guns. Um, you know, it's very much an ode to, to old school kind of film noir gangster movies. And and that's interesting because it, it's it's very much for the 80s. It's very much a modern Batman. It's very much, you know, far removed from the the 1960s in in many many different ways, which I probably won't even get into scraping the surface of the ways that it could be different from the 60s version um, of Batman. But um, it's a nice touch to have kind of this ode to uh, old school kind of golden age of Hollywood film noir gangster criminals. I listed off a bunch of the cast off the top. Uh, I think Michael Keaton, he's kind of had a, uh, almost a resurgence. I know during the, the seven year time period when the, the Nolan trilogy was coming out, uh, in theaters and, and, you know, in, in the process of being produced, there was a lot of, you know, this is Batman, uh, and all the other versions are just kind of crap. Um, just as far as the portrayals go. And, you know, I, I'm not going to lie. I definitely bought into that narrative a little bit, but over time, much like a lot of other people, I've kind of warmed up to the idea that Michael Keaton is a really great Batman and not just because of the Batman stuff. I think you could make the argument that there are dozens and dozens and dozens of actors out there or even stuntmen out there who could be a convincing Batman when he's in the suit. The trick is casting a Batman who's going to be comfortable in the Bruce Wayne, Bruce Wayne role as well. And that's where I think Keaton is is really, really great as a absent-minded, you know, you, you get the sense that Bruce Wayne is out of place, but you also get the sense that he feels like he's out of place. And that's where Keaton's at his at his best here, especially in the the first couple of scenes uh where he is Bruce Wayne at the at the dinner party at his uh at his mansion and, and the encounter with Knox and Vale in the armory room. That's maybe my favorite scene ever of Bruce Wayne being Bruce Wayne. He's completely awkward, completely over his head, almost get the sense that he doesn't really know what he's doing because that's not who he really is. It's not who he really wants to be. And that's a theme that we'll, we'll talk about, you know, ad nauseum over the length of, of the, this podcast series dealing with Batman and of course, Bruce Wayne, because you can't talk about one without the other. Um, and I think that's an important part to understanding the casting behind the Bruce Wayne character. And in particular behind why Michael Keaton is so good as Batman. I also think during that, that whole sequence in the dinner party and even throughout the movie, uh, it's really clever writing to have Bruce give a different answer every time someone asks who he is. And here are some examples uh, you know, when Vicky asks him, do you know who Bruce Wayne is? And he, or do you know which one of these guys is Bruce Wayne? And he says, I have no idea. And then he encounters her in the armory room and she says, oh, Bruce Wayne, are you sure this time? Or are you sure about that? And he goes, I'm sure this time. And then when he meets the Joker in Vicky's apartment, oh, you're Bruce Wayne. And he goes, most of the time. Giving different answers each time is is really, really clever writing. And I know these early Batman movies kind of struggle a little bit bit with the writing and part of that has to do with kind of the tone and and the the mindset of the the production of these movies but um you know the it's not to say they don't have strengths in their writing and i think the 
the, the the entire portrayal of Bruce Wayne, right from the the writing to the casting to the portrayal itself, is is really really ingenious. What's interesting about this movie is that um, Jack Nicholson was given first billing in this movie. Um, it's not Michael Keaton starring in Batman. It's Jack Nicholson starring in Batman, not as Batman, but in Batman. Um, and it, like I said a, a couple minutes ago, you know, you you could absolutely make the argument that this is the Joker's movie. He is the focal point uh, of the movie. It's really an origin story for him, um, more so than Batman. And that's something that that I'll talk about a little bit too later on. But um, you know, as far as having a complete character arc in this movie from beginning to end, this is very much the Joker's movie. Starting off, of course, as as the straight-laced uh, kind of right-hand man to Grissom, uh, Jack Napier. And, and I almost get a feeling like this, uh, this Napier character is kind of like a sneak preview of Frank Costello from The Departed before the cocaine got to him. Like there are, gl- I know Napier's only in it for a couple of scenes, and we only get a glimpse into what this character is like, what Jack Napier himself is like. But um, you know, there's a couple of beats and a couple of moments in in those opening scenes where it is, it's almost like, oh, that's kind of like Frank Costello minus the cocaine. Uh, of course, once he turns into the Joker, uh, falling into the the vat of kind of chemical acid. Uh, the Joker is just wonderfully, incredibly crazy and maniacal in a manner that very much befits the tone from the movie. Uh, you know, singing that that tune while he's you know zapping the guy and literally cooking uh, the guy with the the handshake zapper gag. Um, you know, and, and I know the Joker makes this kind of off on a tangent a little bit, but the Joker asks a question at some point in the movie, like, where does he get these wonderful toys? Like, I want to know the same thing about the Joker. The Joker arguably has just as many as just as many toys and gadgets as Batman does. Where does he get them from? Um, you know, and it's it's a fun kind of duality and dynamic that the Joker and the Batman have from beginning to end of the movie. And I know a lot's been made about the casting of Nixon as the Joker and like, okay, yeah, it's the easy pick. And, you know, it, it makes sense. And it does make sense. And I also think, again, going back to this idea that this is the first big budget Batman movie. It had a big budget. It needed to live up to that budget, need to be successful at the box office in order to be a successful movie. Um, and the studio needed to cast a big name somewhere in this movie in a prominent role. Michael Keaton wasn't really a blockbuster name yet. I know he had, he was a recognizable name, but I don't know if he's necessarily the blockbuster kind of guy that you can necessarily bank an entire franchise on at this point. Kim Basinger, who plays Vicky Vale, she wasn't blockbuster status either. But by this point in the late 80s, Nicholson was massive. He was the Hollywood star. He had already had nine Oscar nominations at this point. And in addition to that, he fit the role of the Joker because he'd already done crazy very prominently in very recognizable roles. One Flew Over the Cuckoo's Nest, The Shining, Five Easy Pieces. I mean, these are all classic Nicholson roles where he has even in five easy pieces where it's a dramatic role and he's not flying off the handle from beginning to end. There are moments within that movie where you're like, yep, that's crazy Jack. And crazy Jack is exactly the type of person who this 
movie needed. Again, setting out to start a franchise or start a series. You needed someone, not necessarily someone you could bank the franchise around at this point, but you needed a big name to draw people into the movie. And everything, all those descriptors, along with the role of the Joker, I mean, the the shoes fit perfectly for Nicholson. And he fit the type of movie that this is, that Burton's setting, the tone, the scenery, everything, the writing. Nicholson fit this movie perfectly for what it was. (laughs) I'm glad you did. (laughs) And again, I know it's kind of become a common superhero trope at this point, the classic superhero thing of the Joker eventually somehow accidentally or not just attaching himself to the love interest of the hero uh leading ultimately to a a classic showdown between villain and hero often one where the the and and here we get the kind of a dual showdown we get one where uh in vicky's apartment when it's bruce wayne and the joker and bruce wayne isn't you know he's not in his batman garb and we have the you know that classic you want to get nuts let's get nuts line um, and then the climactic showdown at the end with uh, both characters in their full full getup and full hero villain costume. This town needs an enema. <laughs> Some of the categories I'll be getting into uh, a little bit different than kind of the, the general one-off movie podcasts that I do, and, and a little different from the Mission Impossible series that I did last summer. Uh, Every Batman movie, we'll talk about the Batmobile and the tech and the gadgets that Batman has in this movie, kind of highlighting some of the main ones. With the Batmobile in this one, we get voice commands, which for the 1980s was kind of a big deal. Uh, I know it, we, you know, thanks to things like Alexa and Siri now, um, you know, or Google, like the, the voice command thing is almost second nature to some people. In the late 80s, it, it wasn't so much commonplace. It was kind of a, a big thing for you know, it's a big deal for Bruce Wayne to have a voice command Batmobile. Uh, it has shields which go up and come down in large part with the voice command. Lots of firepower in this thing. I mean, machine guns. He's got a literal bomb dropper, like bombs that are stored in the Batmobile that he just drops outside the Batmobile. Uh, and when the bombs go off, like the Batmobile emerges completely unscathed. Uh, so not only is the firepower on that thing good, but the armor is absolutely incredible uh some of the tech and the gadgets that batman has here a little bit of the batarang not not the detached batarang but kind of the the claw device that kind of hooks criminals to himself he's got grappling hooks and then of course at the end of the movie the epic bat wing which we'll talk about of course his uh his one man fighter jet in the exact precise shape of the uh, the Batman logo, which is, I think it's a nice touch. Again, it, it fits the tone of the movie, uh, especially again, keeping in mind that it's the first one of a franchise that Warner Brothers was trying to start. Uh, so, you know, getting the logo out there and in the movie as much as possible, uh, I think was a was a smart idea on their part. Uh, so, having the the Batwing in the in the shape of the logo was was a fun idea. Best scenes and shots from the movie. I absolutely need to highlight the shot uh, of Batman standing in front of the red 
glowing neon axis sign after the uh, the fateful encounter with Jack Napier, where he falls into the vat of chemicals, therefore turning him into the Joker. Um, it's it's I mean that's a great sequence for a lot of reasons. One because it's the first time that Batman's really revealed himself to the the entire Gotham police force and Commissioner Gordon. Um, but that shot on the rooftop uh, in front of the glowing red axis sign is one I see. Uh, you know, when people talk about this movie on, on Twitter all the time, that's typically the picture that they use. And it's a really, really brief shot. Like it's only one or two seconds, uh, of time in the movie, but it's, it's such a good shot. Um, and, and ditto goes for the, the shots in that opening sequence, which first introduce us to the, uh, this new Batman, this new cinematic Batman to the, the two muggers on the roof with all the, the fog and the steam. And we don't really get a clear look at him until kind of close to the edge of the sequence when the, or the end of the sequence, when the criminals see him for the first time. Uh, the, I mentioned the Batwing a minute ago and, and it's a really, it's very much a glory shot. The shot, uh, of the Batwing silhouetted up against the moon it's a hundred percent a glory shot. It's a hundred percent fan service. It's totally doesn't have any real purpose in the movie, but it's completely appropriate for this movie because of a couple of reasons. One, the movie doesn't pretend to be too good for that sort of thing. Like a shot like that would have been absolutely out of place in something like the Nolan trilogy or the, the Batfleck uh, era. But for the, for this type of movie, the tone that it has, it's very much within uh, fits the the realm of fitting in the tone of the movie. And another thing that I mentioned a couple times as well, first big budget Batman movie, you have to have the logo in it. If you have the Batman and it's in the shape of the logo, you have to make it blatantly obvious to us. And and I, it's such a cool shot uh, that they were able to pull off. Uh, the shot which pretty much immediately follows it, which is uh, Batman, you know, flying the Batwing through Gotham, opening fire on the Joker standing in the middle of the street, right in front of the float. When, uh, when the Joker says, come on, you gruesome son of a bitch, come to me. Uh, it's just a really well-staged scene. And also, you know, you get that ridiculous, super absurdly long pistol, which the Joker is, has tucked away in his belt. Like, and that pistol has a wildly impressive firepower behind it. It's really ridiculous. It's really fun and leads directly into the real final showdown in the, in the bell tower. Uh, RIP Batwing, which of course crashes on the, on the steps of the church. Uh, but that, that whole sequence and with the Batwing and, and opening fire on the Joker is such a well-staged uh, series of shots and such a fun sequence. Uh, and then we get that whole steeple sh- steeple top showdown, uh, which is absolutely phenomenal. You know, we get the 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 bell plummeting down the staircase, almost taking out Batman and taking out a bunch of the stairs. Uh, to the concluding fist fight and Joker subsequent being tossed off the uh, the roof of the the bell tower or the 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 bell tower itself. Uh, you know, even the sound there, the Joker's sinister voice and laughter echoing through the bell tower. Um, you know, I. I some nitpicky questions like how did his henchman get up there and all of a sudden the joker's absurdly long pistol is gone and he just has a regular one now you know there's all these other questions that that go with it but the great thing about about these first few batman movies is you definitely can can watch them and with a complete and total uh suspension of disbelief and you know the the idea of 
complete and utter reality is just kind of tossed out the window at times. And in some ways, I know that's a criticism of these movies, but in some ways it's, uh, it's a, it's a strength. It's a, it's a fun part of these fun, silly comic book movies. And, and that's something that, uh, you know, a critique that I see all the time, which, which I, that's my point that I argue with. It's a comic book movie. If we can't suspend a little bit of our disbelief, then it, it's not doing true justice to the, the comic book trope, the, the idea of a comic book movie. Best quotes. Obviously, uh, most of them in this one are uh, Jack Nicholson's lines, the Joker's lines. You can call me Joker. Wait till they get a load of me. Haven't you ever heard of the healing power of laughter? That's one that kind of gets uh, redone in, in The Dark Knight. I have given a name to my pain, and it is Batman. We are Beauty and the Beast. Of course, if anyone else calls you Beast, I'll rip their lungs out. And then, of course, that classic Keaton-Bruce Wayne outburst in Vicky's apartment. The, you want to get nuts? Let's get nuts. Uh, you know, it's a great... The first, I remember the first couple of times I watched it going like, what is going on here? This is totally out of place. But so is Bruce Wayne. We have to keep that in mind. He's not wearing his Batman armor. So he, he struggles with that identity of being Bruce Wayne. And, and that's part of why I think that scene is so great. And that line is so great. Why the movie works. Well, the movie actually won an Oscar for best art decoration, set decoration. And rightfully so this vision of Gotham City is deliriously different from anything we've ever seen. It's so architecture, architecturally unlike much else we'd ever really seen before. Um, I mean, visually, it's just so great from the architecture to the actual cinematography itself. Uh, and I know some of the animation and VFX bits haven't aged extremely well, but that doesn't take away from the fact that it's still an extremely well shot movie. Everything from, you know, the angles of the shots as, as Batman is being revealed to the lighting, uh, particularly in the scene when Jack Napier reveals himself as Joker to Grissom. I mean, the lighting in that scene, pretty much every scene with Joker in the in the Joker makeup after that is absolutely incredible. Uh, and that dark, dim lighting creates a really fun ambiance for Gotham. And it's it since then we know it's it's become classic Burton. I mean, think of every Tim Burton movie you've ever seen. Uh, it kind of has that dim and dark and I don't want to say colorless because there are colors present within his movies, but just the lighting and kind of the ambiance is very dark and dim. And I say that, but keep in mind the obvious exceptions would be the Willy Wonka movie and the Alice in Wonderland movies, but uh, specific to Gotham city and, and the character of Batman, it really does create the perfect setting for this, this kind of hero versus villain battle that we have. And, you know, it, it's a fun reversal. Uh, to what I think a lot of audiences would have been used to at this point in time. Uh, because we have the hero, Batman, who's dressed all in black. He's macabre. He's sinister looking. And his enemy, the villain, is the Joker. This clown-faced, pale white-skinned, purple-suited, green-haired villain. And generally speaking, like I said, this is, kind of how, this is kind of a reversal of how good and bad are generally portrayed in terms of colors or appearance. But, you know, look at Star Wars, which absolutely played up the idea that you know good guys are always wear lighter colors and the bad guys aka darth vader and emperor palpatine always wear nothing but black like they it definitely plays up on the the light side dark side 
theme, not just in in terms of its colors, but in terms of the the central overarching theme of Star Wars as well. And with that kind of dominating the late seventies, early eighties, as far as cinema goes, this is a a great reversal. Uh, and the idea that the hero embraces the darkness of the city by taking on the symbol of a bat is another neat reversal. And I know we see a lot more of this now, not just with with Batman, but with other other characters as well, as superhero or otherwise. Um, but at this point in the eighties, in the late eighties, I don't, I don't know if it was a commonplace thing yet. And you know, I could be, I, admittedly, I could be wrong about this because I was a child of the nineties. Uh, I grew up in in the nineties and, and watching the the movies that came out of the nineties. Um, so I I didn't I didn't live through the eighties. I di- I don't know if if this was a common uh, trait or trope of of movies. This idea of a a colorful villain and a dark hero which is a really fun idea, which this movie really uses to its advantage. Again, right down to the casting. You have the wild and the the nutty Nicholson uh, as the Joker uh, and someone more bland and not as associated with being crazy and I already mentioned not as bankable or not as A-list uh, could have really altered or changed the movie. Uh, I think focusing on both the villain and the hero is good when it works. I know uh, one of the things I talk about in... Uh, in some of the Bond, the 007 written reviews, which I've done for for TalkingGreatestFilms.wordpress.com, uh, another shameless plug there. Um, but one of the critiques I have about a lot of the villains is that we, we never see them until the last 15 minutes of the movie. And sometimes it works and sometimes it doesn't. And likewise, you know, when, when the 007 franchise tries to focus on both villain and hero throughout the movie, there are times when that doesn't work. But I think when it does work, it's it's really good. And I think this is a case where focusing on both villain and hero does work. I mentioned it's already more of an origin story for the Joker, but we do get insight into why Bruce Wayne became Batman uh, close to the end of the movie. And I know, you know some people might have wanted this to be a true blue 100% origin story for how Bruce Wayne became Batman and that origin story. But in truth, we kind of get it. It's just not very fleshed out. But that's okay because we already have one origin story from kind of beginning to end, and that's the Joker. Um, and it's kind of deserving. I mean, he's the top build actor, given the star power. You really, when you have Jack Nicholson, you really want this to be his movie. You really want this to be the Joker's movie with some fun Batman action and some great scenes of Bruce Wayne being awkward as hell in public uh, and even in private. Uh, think about the date scene with with Vicky Vale, which is another just hilarious scene. Um, you know those kind of scenes thrown in, and uh, you know I I I know I said I didn't want to talk about the Joker movie, which came out two years ago. Uh, if you were to make a, a movie that was just a reel of all of the Jack Nicholson scenes from Batman, it would be better than the Joker movie we got two years ago. And I know that might be a controversial take. I'm going to stand by that. Uh, Nicholson is fantastic. Why the movie doesn't work. So there are three arguments that I see the most. And full disclosure, I really like this movie. You know, I I really kind of have to nitpick to find stuff that's wrong with this movie. I'll get into those in a second. Um, But the arguments that that I commonly see the most, the three arguments are Nicholson is too crazy. It's too darkly and dimly lit, and it's too cartoony and comic booky. So my rebuttal to all three of those arguments, 
in order. So the first one, Nicholson is too crazy. Warner Brothers' plan B in casting the Joker was Robin Williams. So just think about that. Is Jack Nicholson really too crazy to play the Joker when the plan B was the absolutely batshit crazy Robin Williams? The second point, Burton's style is dark scenery, but again, it helps make the Joker pop on the screen and helps Batman blend in with his environment. And it's a really fun reversal of that kind of home base for the hero. Uh, and that's, you know, helping Batman blend into the environment. That's really what you want from a Batman movie. And as for the two cartoony and comic book, uh, comic booky argument, I will always make this argument when I hear that being said. It's literally a comic book story. It's a character who originated in the comic book. Batman is literally a comic book hero who lives primarily in comics and cartoons. Yes, even today with all of these Batman movies and TV shows and everything else coming out. Uh, so yeah, while having a gritty and real take is fun, and then you look at the the Nolan trilogy and Man of Steel with Superman. Uh, you know, you look at uh, the the upcoming Pattinson movie. Looks like it's going to be much within that same vein of grittiness and realism as well. But there's nothing wrong with having just having fun with a comic book movie, accepting that for what it is, and just having fun with it. And I've made that argument uh, in favor of Wonder Woman eighty four, uh, which don't get me wrong, is a flawed movie. I get that. But at the same time, it's a comic book movie. And it treats itself as a comic book movie and just has fun. And there's nothing wrong with that. Uh, and I know the Wonder Woman argument is it's a different debate for a different day. But it, it applies here to the Batman uh, argument as well. You know, I, I don't think it's too cartoony and comic book comic booky. It It embraces it. Uh, and I think that's one of the strengths of this movie and, and the, the movie that followed it. Now, some things I personally don't like about this movie and, and why the movie maybe doesn't work um, is something I know a lot of Batman fans at the time, judging from things I've read, uh, took issue with, which is the the reveal of Bruce Wayne as Batman to Vicki Vale. Alfred showing her into the Batcave seems really odd. I mean, you'd, you'd think Alfred would protect Bruce, and there's even a line in the movie where he talks about he doesn't want to mourn uh, good friends because he's already done that, and he doesn't want to mourn good friends or their children. Uh, and I know later on, like with the Michael Caine Alfred and the Jeremy Irons Alfred, like there's definitely much more of a bodyguard sense. And if you look at the TV show Gotham, which admittedly I haven't watched all of, but I've seen you know a few episodes of it, and you know you absolutely get the sense that Alfred is more of a bodyguard than a butler for Bruce. Um, so here in, in Batman, just letting Vicky into the Batcave, you know, you'd, you'd think he'd protect Bruce's identity uh, and by, by proxy, the identity of those he, he cares about and associates with a little more than just kind of welcoming them with open arms into the Batcave and just kind of revealing everything pretty hastily. I mean, it's not like Bruce and Vicky have, are married or that they've even been together a long time. Like the whole from beginning to end, this movie takes place over the course of, I'm pretty sure it's less than a week. Um, I don't know that kind of the timeline gets a little muddy, but like at the point in time when Vicky is shown into the Batcave, that's, we're talking, they've been dating for a couple of days at this point. Um, and aside from that, like it's weird that no one in that scene really had a reaction. Like Bruce Wayne didn't really react to Vicky appearing in the Batcave. 
Vicky doesn't really react to this reveal that the guy she's seeing happens to be Batman. Like, there's, I don't know if it's sloppy writing or sloppy acting. Um, I I do like Michael Keaton as Bruce Wayne, and I think Kim Basinger is fine as Vicky Vale. So I, I don't want to blame the acting, but I can't help but think that that might be a small part of it. I don't know what it is. That that whole scene is just kind of weird. Um, so that, I mean, that that, sequ- that scene aside, you know, I, I don't really have much other than nitpicking, like, in the bell tower, where do the Joker's henchmen come from? And how does the Joker keep getting all these gadgets? And, you know, there's definitely nitpicks to be had in this movie, but I've already mentioned it, you know, you have to suspend a little bit of disbelief here. And, and I think this movie asks you to do that. Um, but it does so knowing that, Hey, like we're not trying to be 100% within the realm of reality. Like this is a comic book movie. It's a comic book villain. We're going to take some creative liberties here. And I think that's completely fine because like I said, it, it really taps into that really embraces that idea of being a comic book movie. The last category or the last uh, segment here, is this a top three movie for the director? Um, I, th- I debated including this category uh, because the, the Batman franchise really doesn't branch out into a ton of different directors, much like the Mission Impossible franchise does, uh, or much like the, the other kind of one-off standalone movies that I that I do here on the podcast do. Um but I, I think it's it's worth noting because, you know, when you look at uh, the majority of the Batman directors, whether it's Tim Burton, whether it's Joel Schumacher, whether it's even Christopher Nolan, I mean, these are directors who had done some good movies, but weren't necessarily household names until they did Batman movies. And I, I'll talk a lot more about that with Christopher Nolan when we get to him uh, in a few episodes from now, but, um, with Tim Burton, you know, I, I think the argument can definitely be made. I mean, don't get me wrong. I, is this a top three movie for him? I mean, I, I love sleepy hollow. I don't know if it's top three Burton in terms of being his best. And, and that's one thing that I struggle a lot with too. Like, is this a top three, my favorite movies or a top three best movies? I think it's a top three favorite movie for me, for sure. In terms of being the top three best made Burton movie. It's been ages since I've seen Big Fish, but I remember feeling like that was something really good after watching it. Aside from Batman Returns and Edward Scissorhands, I'm not really sure what more of his movies you could really truly justify as being in the top three for Burton. So yeah, I think Batman is absolutely a top three Burton movie. And I don't like Beetlejuice is a fun movie. I don't think it necessarily belongs in the conversation as being in Burton's best three of all time. He does have an interestingly short filmography as far as a director go, like a surprisingly short one. Um, but I think Batman, yeah, I think it's, it's a top three movie. It's definitely the one that launched him more, uh, kind of into the mainstream and into the, the idea of being a, a blockbuster director and, and giving him the, the ability to make those movies like big fish and sleepy hollow and Edward Scissorhands. Um, so yeah, I think this is about definitely a, a top three movie for Tim Burton as a director. So that brings us to the end of the podcast dealing with 
Batman, the first installment in the Batman series of podcasts that I'll be doing, the first modern Batman movie, Michael Keaton will return in Batman Returns, which will be the next episode of the Batman series on the Talking Films podcast. Stay tuned for other podcasts coming your way, however you have been listening or subscribing to them. Uh, I always appreciate any feedback, so feel free to reach out through the website, talkinggreatestfilms.wordpress.com, or on Twitter, at Films Talking. Always love interacting with people there. Uh, so feel free to reach out with feedback on this or any other episodes you've listened to. If there are movies you want me to see me do, whether it's through podcast format, written review format, if there are ideas about uh, you know essays, written essays that you'd like me to do, reach out because I'm always open to to new ideas and, and some fun content. So thanks very much for listening, everyone. This has been Batman uh, starring Michael Keaton. We'll see you next time on the Talking Films podcast. Stay safe out there, everyone. Bye.